a special edition of the SPAC Insider podcast. This week, SPAC Insider's founder, Christy Marvin, speaks with Harry Sloan, chairman of Screaming Eagle Acquisition Corp. It raised $750 million in its January 6th IPO, but Sloan has been doing SPAC deals since 2011. They discuss how both the market and the product have changed since then, and what financial drivers behind the scenes caused 2021 to be the wildest SPAC year on record. Is the answer moving forward to change SPAC terms, or to simply have fewer SPACs overall? Sloan has one vehicle that would represent a new model for the SPAC market before the SEC right now. Find out more about that and how he thinks the market shakes out in 2022. So Harry, thanks so much for, for joining me today. Very interested in talking to you, uh, particularly because you just priced Scream Eagle, uh, $750 million. So just out of curiosity, uh, how did that go, particularly because the market is just so different now than even a few months ago, and certainly from a year ago this time? Yeah, look, on one hand, it was much harder than it, we even thought it would be when we started talking to investors in December. Um, on the other hand, we did price $750 million last week, and it was the largest one in what, since March. So I really don't have anything to complain about. You know, we're certainly appreciative of the support we got. We have 87 investors and a 90% hit rate. They weren't investing as much as they might have two months ago, certainly six months ago. You know, six, uh, what was it, uh, March or April of last year, we raised uh, Soaring Eagle was $1.7 billion. Um, so I, I think the difference between the 1.7 billion, which is, would be the sort of top of the market raise six, nine months ago, 750 now, I think would be the top of what anybody could raise today. The investors aren't there for any more than that. Yeah. I mean, so being on the road right now, um, you know, listen, it's been a brutal uh, fourth quarter of 2021. Um, but even in the last month, it just really, um, you know, given the macro environment with, you know, inflation and everything else, um, you know, tech stocks, growth stocks taking a hit. Like I imagine this was just, I mean, and also you've already priced previous to this seven specs. So given the context of other years, was this the hardest roadshow you've been on? No, it, it wasn't the hardest roadshow because it was harder than the last two, but night and day easier than the early days when we first started, you know, 11 years ago. SPAC was a dirty word. It may become one again. I hope not. Uh, and if it does, we can talk about why. But uh, no, it, it, no, and not harder at all because, you know, there's so many funds who, even though they have less money to invest, are open and interested in SPACs. So, you know, much, much easier than it was when we started 11 years ago. As you said, this is our eighth one. Our first one we raised was 2011. Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, let, let's maybe kind of go there. That was uh, Global Eagle, I believe, right? Which closed in 2013. I I think the deal did the deal close. It was either 12 or 13. We raised it in 11. Mm-hmm. Probably 13. I think you're right. I think it closed in 13. Yeah, I mean, so so you're the team that's probably been around the longest, and you've seen the market through. It's good, the bad, the ugly. Maybe you can kind of you know talk to us a little bit about what it was like in the early year, years when you're right, when SPACs were a dirty word, nobody really understood it, the product at least. What was it like back then? Got it so long ago. Uh, there was only a few SPAC sponsors. Um, the size of the SPACs were, we did the biggest one in a couple of years at 190 million by going out at 175. Um, it, it had been primarily just financial sponsors. 
uh, people who you know thought that what they were bringing to the table was financial expertise. We decided to differentiate ourselves. Uh, Jeff Zaganski had been head of CBS, and I've been the head of MGM. And we said, you know, we're going to be a media entertainment SPAC. In, in those days, uh, media meant new media. That's what they used to call it, the 1.0, whatever else. And we went out and we said, look, you know, there's not much growth in traditional media, meaning television, satellite, cable, and all that. So we'd be looking, we told the investors for, to invest in a new media, a new media deal, digital media, whatever you want to call it. If it was in the U.S. Now, outside the U.S., um, we could do traditional media or traditional television, but it would have to be a high growth market like in India, or we mentioned a number of those. And ironically, the very first deal we did, uh, Global Legal Entertainment, was a digital media deal. It was Wi-Fi delivery to the airlines, meaning the uh, satellite delivery, as well as the content. And the second deal we did was a traditional television deal with satellite TV, but it was in India. So digital new media in the U.S., if it's going to be traditional television, for example, it'd have to be a high growth market. But, you know, I'd love to get to where things stand right now. I think that's what's what's happened in the last year is defined everything you'd, you'd really want to know about specs. I'm not sure the history or even going through, you know, the first four or five is as relevant to talk about as the last year. I'd love to get into what's gone on in the last year. Yeah, the only reason I kind of brought it up was Will Scott, right, which is arguably right now probably your most successful SPAC, but that was closed in 2017 before SPACs were even popular. Um, yeah. And so that that is honestly a, a huge accomplishment considering, I mean, you basically did missionary work uh, back then trying to um, get people to understand the product, period. But um, I think you're probably most well-known for right now is DraftKings, obviously. Yeah, um, we're, we're we're most well known for DraftKings, but I do want to tie it into William Scotsman for a second. William Scotsman was our third, DraftKings was our fifth. Uh, DraftKings could only be done in a SPAC because it was a three-way merger. There were DraftKings, you know, wanted to buy SB Tech, which is its tech supplier, so that its story could be that it's going to compete with the best products as opposed to just spending money on marketing, which is what you're seeing is going on like crazy right now, particularly the New York launch. But anyway, but you can't take two companies public at the same time with a regular way IPO. You'd have to first put them together. You have to have consolidated financials. The investors would want to see the synergies. It just can't be done. But with the SPAC, because you're already public, you can take two companies public at the same time. So basically our SPAC bought DraftKings and SP Tech and the rest is history. With William Scotsman, that was also a roll-up strategy, but in a completely different way. It also, both of them led to $40 stocks and DraftKings, I guess it's even been higher. But with William Scotsman, that could only be done through a SPAC too. William Scotsman, total valuation of William Scotsman was $800 million. They wanted to raise another eight, $900 million to buy their biggest competitor, which is called ModSpace, which was in the hands of distressed debt funds and therefore needed to be sold. But a deal couldn't be done up front. So we went out and we told the investors, look, we're trying to raise a lot of money. We had a $500 million pipe. We had a $500 million spec. We want to raise a lot of money because we can buy the biggest competitor. There's no antitrust issue because it's real estate. Investors believed in that. And by the time we were done with expenses and redemptions, everything else, we had $800 million. So we raised $800 million on a company whose valuation was only $800 million. And again, you could only do that with a spec. And the reason I say that is what we look for 
are deals that absolutely make sense only with a SPAC. There are SPAC sponsors who say SPAC is always better. It's not. Most of the time, you're better off going regular way. If you've got, you know, comps and you're not a, we call a category of one company where you're the only one in, in the business, which is what DraftKings was, Skills was, DNA, uh, Ginkgo was as well. You're, if you're not a category of one company, if you don't have a reason to be a SPAC, then you probably shouldn't. And these idea of these mergers, these roll-ups, DraftKings and, and uh, SB Tech, William Scotsman raising money to buy ModSpace, which it did. It bought ModSpace stock double to 20. Since then, they bought everything else. And you're right, it's at $40. There has to be a reason. Anthony Noto spoke at, uh, you know, from SoFi, spoke at the Goldman Conference. And uh, SoFi was a hot company, still is. He needed to raise a billion dollars. He could have gone regular way. He could have gone um, private, you know, the private round. But he needed a billion dollars because he wanted to dilute his foreign investor so he'd get a banking license. And the best way, he said, to create certainty was the SPAC, the pipe to SPAC group, to get size and to get certainty. That was a reason. And that was, you know, it's been successful for everybody. So, again, we look for a reason. Will Scott and DraftKings were consolidation plays, but in a different way. One was up front and the other was the SPAC was done to ultimately buy another property. Having said that, I mean, do you think that the biggest problem with the market right now is people aren't using the SPAC vehicle properly, um, just as you were sort of mentioning? That's the second biggest problem. Um, the biggest problem is the speculation that occurred, you know, last year at this time in the first quarter. The, the run-up in SPAC valuations and then the bursting of the bubble and the mall, you know, dropping in half, you know, I think the roots of that were the way SPACs were being done a year ago partially from the success of DraftKings. DraftKings closed in April of 2020. There were 30 or 40 SPACs. And by the end of that year, there were 400. And by the end of last year, there were 600. I think DraftKings really did have a lot to do with building the SPAC market. And what happened then was by first quarter of last year, the banks were so excited about the SPAC business. They were going to medium-sized, small hedge funds that you guys haven't even heard of. And they'd say, look, you know, put up $200 million into a SPAC fund of equity, and we will lend you 4X or 5X. So all of a sudden, these guys would have a would have a billion-dollar SPAC fund, and they'd be buying 20 SPACs, we put in 50 million or big money. And as a result of that, the SPAC prices kept going up and up and up. And why not? Because the banks would give you basically free money at very low interest rates, five times leverage, because they knew they could get their money back. They could force you to redeem. However, when the deals get announced, these same SPAC funds have to make a decision to put real capital in to stay in a deal because they're not going to get five to one leverage. They're not going to get any margin sometimes on these deals. And they couldn't do that. So then by last summer, when the bubble burst, call it April, May, June, they had to sell all these specs because they couldn't afford to be in the deals once they announced them. So they would either sell as soon as they could or they would redeem. And that created this incredible wave of not just redemptions where 20, 30, 40, 50, 100% of the fund would get redeemed, but also the prices of the stock specs would drop precipitously. So that was problem number one. Problem number two were the pipes. So Pipe used to be a place where you would go to long-only investors, the bellwether investors who were not in the SPAC because the SPAC was hedge funds. And you'd want to get Fidelity and Capital Group and Wellington and Franklin and people. You want to get these guys in. They've got great analyst teams. They could confirm the valuation, right? And they could get their feet wet 
And, and normally it would take them several quarters of earnings before they get in at all. They get their feet wet with a 50, 100 million and they want to buy more. That was the purpose of the pipe. The pipe was to bring in the bellwether, the long only funds, fidelity, capital group. And that's what we always did. However, while this bubble was going on in SPACs, the hedge funds looked and said, oh my God, these SPACs are trading 11, 12. We can buy a pipe at $10. Why not? So they piled into these pipes. That was all during the first and second quarter of last year. And when the SPACs dropped, for the reason I gave you, you know, number one, for the number of reasons, all that speculation disappeared, the hedge fund said, oh my God, you know, we can't, uh, we're stuck in these pipes. And then, now there's this huge pipe overhang. So that blows through kind of in the beginning of last year. And then the third thing that created the speculation was when the retail market bought all the GameStop that they could and bought all the AMC they could. They said, oh, let's buy SPACs. So last first quarter, again, last year, all the same time, credible speculation came in from the retail world. So you had the banks funding the SPAC funds, you had hedge funds jumping into pipes, and then you had retail. So that all came crashing down over the summer. And I thought, okay, we're gonna have sanity, right? We're gonna have you know, prices that make sense. We're gonna have a lot less specs. I mean, who needs 600 specs? There would be less specs and everything. And this new phenomenon now came up late summer, which is overfunding the trusts. And what we call that is paying people to redeem, right? Yep. You, know, you give me a dollar, I'll, if you wanna redeem, I'll give you a dollar three or a dollar four or a dollar two. And now all of those same speculation said, well, gosh, and credit funds and everyone else, why wouldn't we want to do that? So now you've got as many or more SPACs, 50, $60 billion SPAC money came in the second half of last year in these overfunded trusts, which to me is a credit deal, has nothing to do with the reason we're doing SPACs to begin with, which is to find a great company that's going to trade up, you know, like a DraftKings or hopefully our most recent one, the Ginkgo. And we had to fight through that to raise our last fund. You know, we didn't overfund the 750 million. That was the, we weren't willing to do that. We said, there's, this is a tale of two cities. There's the overfunded SPACs, which I can't imagine a target company is gonna get that excited about because in a way they have to, they'd have to tell the target company that they paid their investors to give them the money and they're gonna redeem. So we said, let's, let's put ourselves in a position where we can go to the target company and say, our investors gave us their money because they wanted us to find a big deal, a great deal, not because we're gonna pay them to redeem. That's where, and that's where we are right now. Yeah, I, I would agree with you about the overfunding and um, you know, having worked on SPACs like way back in the day, like we ran into the same problem back then too. You know, like if you look at the history of SPACs and you were around for it, there are a lot of people overfunding trusts back then too. And it was a pure, pure art play. Um, and once it becomes a, an art play, it's like game's over. You know? Yeah, and, and, and two warrants, and you know, instead of a half warrant or a third warrant. I mean, a fifth warrant was a little bit, I think, too one-sided in the direction of sponsors. We did a third warrant this time. I think that's just fine. Half, third, fourth, something like that. So, so A, how do we fix it? Um, B, can it be fixed? Um, you know, where do you see this all sort of heading and going into the first quarter of 2022? Look, I, I, yeah, I think there's two SPAC businesses. There's a, a need to recreate the SPAC business that worked in 2000, that brought us the DraftKings and brought us the SoFis. And those were not overfunded and they were reasonable warrant coverage and they were 
for companies that should not needed a SPAC that didn't naturally just go regular way. And those are companies that big growth companies that have to tell a long-term story. DraftKings, we took it out, there was no business. There was one state, New Jersey. We had to be able to show people what sports betting might look like in three years, four years, five years, how many states would, would permit regulation. Here we are, you know, two and a half years later of the four biggest states, only New York is launched. Investors needed to hear what that longer term story is. That's a reason for a SPAC. We need to get back the days where there's, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 experienced sponsors with fairly large SPACs and are going for quality companies. There will also still be this, you know, maybe larger group of smaller overfunded SPACs because they exist now. They've all been raised in the last six months. So we're going to have to, that's going to have to work its way through the system. And by the way, if it works for the credit funds, it may never go away. I just don't consider that to be the same SPAC business. So I think there'll be two businesses. And what you are thinking of as is, is the SPAC business, which was what existed during the first half of 2020 when we did DraftKings, I think that world is going to take a little while to get back. Again, because we have to blow through that 50 or 60 billion and overfunded SPACs that occurred in the second half of 2021. I would agree with that. Do you, do you think that um, any kind of innovation around some of the other structural parts of the SPAC, you know, might come about as a means of sort of solving that a little bit more quickly? And by that, I mean, um, you know, people have talked before and you've seen a lot of different banks try to introduce innovation around the promote structure, right? Like you had Evercore with their cap structure, Morgan Stanley with their sale and scale structure. Do you foresee anything like that being successful in 2022? Do you think that's sort of coming down the pike? Look, I think it's fine to change the structure of the founder shares and the warrants and all that stuff. All those things are, are fine. I'm not, I'm not sure how much it really does matter because once you actually get into the negotiation, how the founder shares end up should be what's most conducive to company. If the company's size isn't big enough to absorb uh, the sponsor shares and promotes if the sponsor ends up with 5% of the company as opposed to one or 2%. That's just you know way too much friction. And that should get washed out through the negotiation. I mean, on William Scotsman, you mentioned that, you know, we, we took all of our founder shares, 100%, put them into an earnout. Now it's a $40 stock, so we earned all the earnout. But the earnout was at 25, 50, 100% up. On Ginkgo, the last one, we took 60% and we put it either earnout or just gave the, the, the shares back. So. You can, you, can, you can change the structure and make it a rigid structure, more favorable to the companies, less favorable to the SPAC sponsor, or you can leave it where it is and expect the companies to have you know, decent representation. Now there's these SPAC ops, right? Where a company will hire a bank and a bank will bring in the 10 SPACs to audition. And basically they'll crawl all over themselves to take down their pants on the, on the promote anyway to get the deal. So I think the marketplace is going to deal with that. So that's not the structural changes that matter. The structural change I think that would be significant would be if we could get our spinning eagle through. Mm. In other words, a major structural change would be not requiring that all of the SPAC proceeds go into the same deal. And let's go through examples here. Right now, a SPAC is, is rigidly, you take a wheelbarrow, you have a certain amount of cash, you have a bunch of founder shares, you have a bunch of founder warrants, you have a bunch of public warrants, that whole wheelbarrow, it all has to go into the company, whether it's a good fit or not. 
This, I don't think this works on the smaller end or the larger end. Let's look at the smaller end. So skills. Skills only needed $350 million, $300 million. That's all they needed. That's all they wanted. But they wanted to be with our SPAC because we had a halo effect coming off DraftKings and sports betting, skill gaming. It just made a lot of sense. In order to have our SPAC, they had to take $690 million of dilution. We had a, we had a uh, $690 million our SPAC. And then we said, for the reasons I gave you earlier, Chris, we have to do a pipe. We have to see whether that valuation will hold up. So we went and we brought in Fidelity, Wellington, um, Newberger, and, uh, and Franklin Fund into a $150 million pipe. So now they had to take 840 million of dilution. They only wanted 300. So they forced 500 million of sales into their existing investors. Of say. So that just wasn't natural. If we had had the spinning eagle format where we can split it up and do several deals, we could have given them their 300, which is exactly what they needed for the capital structure. And why not? And you still have all the rights of redemption um, you know, for the investors. And then the other thing is, the other reason they have spinning is the best IPOs actually are the big ones. We showed evidence on the last roadshow that the 17 SPACs that had more than a billion dollars in proceeds that were done in the last two years way outperformed the ones that were below a billion. Bigger is actually usually better. You can get lucky with a DraftKings, which is a little smaller, although that I think was six. But the bigger ones perform better. But people don't raise big SPACs. This is when there's plenty of money available because the limit of targets, right? There are so few targets that are big enough to accommodate a billion dollar SPAC. So few five, $10 billion deals, particularly that want to go SPAC. So if you have the spinning structure, we were going to raise two and a half billion. I think we fell to one and a half, but we we're going to try to raise two billion. We could go elephant hunting. We could go after a big deal, but which again would be the best deals for the SPAC investors because the bigger deals do perform better. And, and same thing with regular way. But if we weren't able to achieve it, we could do several deals. We could do a 500 million or a billion. The SEC, we had lots of conversations and again, obviously they're confidential, but we really feel that the SEC understood why from a investor protection issue, this was a good thing. So that would be, I don't know if I've explained it very well, but that would be a major innovation. It would permit the best SPAC sponsors to have big enough SPACs to bring their investors the best deal, but it would also have them be able to right-size it to fit the capital structure of a smaller deal. And the other thing you would do is you would eliminate the conflicts of interest. We've never raised two SPACs at the same time. Most other big SPAC sponsors will have two or three SPACs. They may have a 400, an 800, a billion. Some of them have three, four, five, six SPACs, but they have different investors. So what happens if the best deal ends up with this group of investors and a worse deal ends up with that group of investors? You just, I think you're creating a bit of a conflict. I think the SEC understood this as well. So a lot of these issues would be solved. SPACs would be much better if we can get through the SEC, our spinning, we call it spinning eagle, that we would raise a big fund and we would spin off a certain amount of it to do deal number one, deal number two, multiple deals within the same stack, right size for the target, and but also be able to go for a big deal. So you, you actually filed Spinning Eagle, well, the second version of it in June, right? We're now in January. Where is it with the SEC right now? Yeah, well, after the, after the election, with the election pending, I think they wanted to take a time 
there was a lot of scrutiny about specs, if you remember, in the fall because of all the craziness we were just talking about. And with the new SEC coming in, I think the management wanted to see who the new commissioner, who the new leadership was, what their view was. Now Gary Gensler takes over and he says, we need to take a good look at SPACs and a lot of issues. So that's not really a time for them to make a revolutionary change. So I think with all of that going on, it slowed it down. We refiled it, as you said, in June. Um, we refiled it into the new SEC. We have every reason to believe that they're going to like it. One of the changes we made, and again, this is a public filing, is let's just say we have a $2 billion fund. When we bring the first deal, if it's not for the whole $2 billion, let's just say it's for a billion, the investor has the option to redeem or stay in the deal on the first billion, just like they would normally. They also could redeem the whole fund at that point. So it's incredibly attractive. One of the problems the SEC had with the Pershing Square deal was that they were going to have a certain amount of money going to Universal Music and the rest was going to spin off like ours, but the investor wouldn't have any say over where it went. Pershing was going to be able to determine where it went. We could have told them that the SEC would never have liked that idea, but you know we obviously weren't communicating with each other. That's just not something that was, was ever going to fly with the SEC. And at their guidance, we refiled in June with this change that, again, bring the first deal in, you can redeem the whole thing. So, I mean, very investor friendly. It gives, it, it gives these uh, SPAC the opportunity to bring a bigger deal, a better deal, uh, a right size deal, um, and gives all the options to the investors to, to redeem everything. So a couple of questions. Well, first, let's say, what if you have some sort of like a, a remnant 100 million, 200 million left in the spinning eagle structure? That's typically not your size spec. What do you, do you, at that point, would you just redeem whatever, like, or return money to investors at that point because you didn't want to use it? Or would you try to go out and find a deal? Uh, probably if it was too small, we'd probably return the money to the investors. Which we, which we could do under, under that structure. Right. Um, you know, I, I think we see enough deals that it's unlikely that we wouldn't be able to find things that could fit, but I don't think we necessarily want to do something really, really small because of the amount of work involved. And, and the, the companies we're talking to, we're really trying to get very high quality companies. Not that they're not high quality companies, you know, available that are smaller, but, but our I think our position in the SPAC market are these sort of consumer internet companies that are fairly big and high quality, and they're going to be bigger companies. Yeah. Um, so, so obviously you've looked at Ackman's Spark structure, which I, <laughs> candidly, I think, I think when I, when I think when I first read about it, I said, you know, you, you, he kind of stole a little from you <laughs> from the structure. But what do you think of it? I mean, it's obviously very different than Spinning Eagle. You know, obviously his is also opt-in versus opt-out. Um, with the traditional spec structure. And then further to that, you know, looking at the spinning eagle structure, like I, I don't really see how the SEC would have issues with it. It is novel, but it still is very SPAC-like. Investors still have the ability to redeem at any point. I can't imagine them having much of an issue with it. So um, well, look, it was, it, it, it was, it was, it's been out for public comment for months and months and months. And there hasn't been any negative comments. You'd think somebody would, if there was a, something wrong with it, somebody would a negative comment. Uh, Kathy Wood, uh, who you know speaks for, I think, the class of investors that 
the SEC should be more concerned about, which is the retail investor. I mean, obviously, Fidelity and Wellington have very big boys and can girls and can figure things out, but the retail investor needs protection. And she filed a, a comment saying it would be very good for her constituency. Uh, but, but no one filed a comment that was negative. So I think the SEC is pretty, um, I think they would have to approve it at some point if there's no negative comments. Also, uh, and they've only, and they've had public positive comments, again, the little guy who they are there to protect. We have been told, we have not been informed of any investor protection issues. It's trading and markets, which is a different division of the SEC that's looking at it. And they wanted to have a technically a rule change. That's why the rule change to permit Spinning Eagle was filed by NASDAQ mm. on our behalf. So our partner is NASDAQ and New York Stock Exchange has also come in. So the division of the SEC that regulates trading and markets, that regulates NASDAQ and New York Stock Exchange, that's where it's been sitting. Right. That makes so sense. it's sort of between them to create a rule change to permit it. We didn't think initially, nor did they, that it required a rule change. And for whatever reason, maybe the SEC just wanted a timeout. They said, no, we think it does require a rule change. So the rule change was filed. Comment period has occurred. No negative comments, only positive. And, and I think that would be a very important, that would be very important in, in, in improving the outlook for the whole SPAC world, because then, if the best SPAC sponsors were able to raise billion, two billion, three billion, and the investors could put their money with the bet in an unlimited amount almost to the best SPAC sponsors, maybe the need to have 500, you know, first time SPAC sponsors would be less. Well, I would agree with that, right? Because if you're talking about raising a billion and above for a SPAC, the sponsor teams that can kind of do those big deals, they have to have a ton of experience, very recognizable name, be very difficult for someone um, who's not a, an experienced deal maker to sort of pull off that deal. By the way, I, I believe Ackman had the same issue as far as getting it approved by the New York Stock Exchange too. So I think, I think you guys are both kind of going through that at the same time. Um, yeah, but we were fine. I mean, the, the, both stock exchanges filed for the rule change as part of our filing the, mm -hmm. uh, the issues that I, I think the well the, I think it's really uh, I think all of this is really primarily at the SEC but you're right it is a trading and markets issue it is a market it's a the issues that have been raised have to do with the stock exchange rules and by the way so the, you know the counterpoint to um deals like spinning eagle right is um someone like Chamath right who uh files four IPOs at the same time, all at different sizes, all at different, different sectors. Now, you, the Eagle team has never done that. You've always um, IPO'd a deal, seen it to its conclusion, and then you do the next deal. Um, but why is that? Maybe you can kind of like further explain why you do it that way and you don't like doing multiple deals at the same time. Well, because, uh, and we don't like piling them on top of each other either, because what, first of all, I think there, there is a conflict of interest if you have several SPACs, even though they're different sizes, who gets into what deal and who doesn't, we have to you know, deal with that. So I, I, it is concerning to me, but that's not the main reason. The main reason is that once we announce a deal and public knows about it, there's a lot of interest and a lot of shareholders wanna know what it is. We th that's when most of the work begins. We often have to help the company put together a public board of directors because they generally have a VC board, right? We have to reach out to all the analysts in the case of Ginkgo, 
um, the stock that trades under DNA, we're going to have 12 analysts. We already have half. We're going to have 12 analysts within a few months. We have to be able to have time to spend with the analysts. We then have to have the roadshow with the investors to market it. Those two or three or four months are an incredibly valuable time when the company is really being ready to go public for, again, forward, analysts, investors, try to cut down on redemptions. Right? And all of that work we see as a full-time job. So it may be part of the way we will we'll get a deal, you know, get a, a target company to go with us is we tell them, this is all we're going to do. We announce the deal in, in April and we're going to close it in September. That's what happened with Ginkgo. We're going to spend those four months focused only on this deal. That's all we're going to do. Maybe it helps us get the deal. We're also smaller. I think Michael Klein has 20 or 30 people working there. Mm-hmm. You know, there's three of us. Um, so it's maybe that has something to do with it as well. And then we take a timeout after we close the deal, close Ginkgo in September, try to figure out what's going on in the market, as, as we talked about, you know, before we got this call. Well, um, so looking ahead, let's call it the first half of the year. I think it would be challenging to sort of predict how the entire year is going to go, especially uh, considering how how different 2021 was, first quarter to fourth. But you know, where where do you see specs kind of going post getting through those? Let's call it 500 overfunded or not even just overfunded, but just like those 500 SPACs that are out searching. Um, you know, what do you think the SPAC market looks like once we get through that? I mean, going forward is something like 200 SPACs a year reasonable? Um, maybe you can kind of talk to that. Look, I think there's very little doubt there's going to be a lot of pain in the SPAC market for the next year, year and a half to sort through these five or 600 SPACs. You know, it was one thing when SPAC had this luster right after DraftKings, right? Skills and all of that, that's gone. Yeah, they're all trading way, I mean, DraftKings alone has gone from 50 to 25 and it's been as high as 70. It's, I mean, it's a great company, but the luster is gone and the company's thinking about going SPAC. Now the SPAC sponsor has an uphill battle. There was a point when companies said, we wanna find a SPAC. Private equity firms of all these companies, they need to get public. Let's find a SPAC. Let's have a SPAC off. I don't feel that anymore. We're able to immediately hit the ground running and talk to companies because this is our, you know, eighth SPAC and we've got a backlog of companies we've been talking to. And we just, you know, we closed on or we, we priced the deal on Thursday and this weekend we're talking about two deals. But that's not going to be the case for 600 SPAC sponsors. They're, they're not going to find deals because the companies are not as enamored with SPACs as they were before. SPACs are trading down, you know, it's an uphill battle, I think, for these SPAC sponsors, and we have some uphill battle as well, to find a deal. So they're not going to find deals. When they do find deals, they're going to be in these SPAC offs, where, as I said, they're going to be crawling all over each other to take down their pants on the sponsor shares. And they're going to find out that the reason they left private equity or VC or public funding to go as SPAC, because they're going to make all this money, not the case. They're going to have to, you know, look at William Scotsman, because it was a business we weren't familiar with. We put everything into an earnout. Well, we put everything in an earnout, stock doesn't trade up. So even if they do find a deal, I don't think they're going to necessarily feel they're going to get the, the, the score or the, you know, they thought they were. All that's going to blow out. It has to blow out because if they're not, if people aren't doing specs. So there's going to be, so a year and a half, two years from now, there'll be a lot less. I don't know whether it's 200 or 100. It's not five or 600 not even close to that. Um, the, the quality spec sponsors, and I only call them quality because they've gotten deals done. 
in other words, we feel we're one of those because we've closed seven deals. We're now, you know, on our eighth. You mentioned some of the others. I think those people are going to stay in business. SPAC itself isn't going to go away. You know, it's not a bubble. SPAC is not a bubble. We've seen bubbles. It is not a bubble. There is a reason for SPAC to be there. There's always going to be a reason for SPAC to be there under the current, you know, set of circumstances where growth companies who have great stories actually need to spend time with investors. That's what SPAC permits you to do. It's that simple, right? So I think it's not a bubble. It's not going to go away, but it's definitely going to be way down in number of sponsors can be way down. How much SPAC paper was issued last year all in? 100 billion? Uh, more, 100, 160, 162. Over 50% of all the IPO money was SPAC money. Yeah. yeah. There's no reason for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, so that number cuts down by two thirds. The number of SPACs cuts down by 75%. One to 200 SPACs, third that much money. Yeah, sounds about right. Well, listen, Harry, I don't want to keep you too long, but I really appreciate you spending some time with us. You know, did you have any uh, parting words or any last thoughts? No, no, I just, you know, appreciate the fact that you guys, you know, get into these subjects in depth because, you know, they're not simple. And uh, the idea of doing these podcasts, I think is great. And we're, we'll always be available. And, uh, you know, congratulations on your success as well. well thank you. I, I look forward to um, finally talking to you maybe when we get Spinning Eagle past the SEC and we're talking about uh, you pricing that one. That'll be, that'll definitely be um, a game changer for sure. <laughs> you'll, be, you'll, be, you'll be first in our list. All right, great. Talk. Well, thanks, Harry. I appreciate you taking, uh, taking the time to talk to us again, and uh, have a good day. Yeah, yeah thanks.